our next guest has been named one of the most successful songwriters of the 20th century with recognizable hits like Pat Benatar's Love is a Battlefield. Also, one Tina Turner's The Best, Simply the Best. That's right. And now she's turning a page in her career by taking fans back to the go-go 80s. Oh, yes. Big hair, yes. extra large yes. egos, although that's still in this. It's that the egos have carried over. Yeah. While Parley parties widely popular music videos in her new book, I Am the Warrior, My Crazy Life, Writing the Hits and Rocking the MTV 80s. I love that title, and I love our guests even more. Joining us this morning singer-songwriter, and now author, Holly Knights. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. That was a mouthful. Let's get to the, let's get straight to it. This is the Growing Up Rock Podcast with your hosts, Stephen Michael and Sonny Hollywood Pooney. Now, crank it up. Okay, Hollywood, this week we are revisiting the Thinking the Great series, and we are going to focus our attentions on the music of Holly Knight. Now, Holly Knight, she's one of the greatest songwriters we have of our era, right? Would you agree with that? Uh, Yeah, she has many songs. Not a lot of people know what all the songs she was connected with are. Does that make sense? Yeah, of course that makes sense. And I mean, she's definitely probably more rooted... I would say, in the pop world than she is the rock world, although she's contributed a ton of stuff to rock artists as well. And she's one of these people, she's a lot like Desmond Child in the fact that she had her own band early on in her career, and for whatever reason, it just never worked out for her as an artist. So she began to write songs. And those songs got noticed by the right people, got in the right people's hands, became hits, made her a boatload of money. And so she just kind of stuck with that, I guess, because you go where the money is. And so at some point, I guess you maybe give up your dreams of being an artist and focus more on the music that you're writing. Would that be fair to say, you think? Yeah, yeah. You have a lot of these artists that... uh you know, there's some artists that did dual duty as kind of like a uh, player manager on a baseball team. And then there's some that just like, you know what, I'm done with hitting and fielding. I'm just going to coach. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly right. It's the same for, I mean, there are music producers out there that have fallen into the same trap. Before we get too far into this episode, though, if you're new to the Grown Up Rock podcast, the Thinking the Great series we kind of take time out to explore and discuss individual artists, producers, songwriters. Hell, it can even be music managers, just about anybody that's involved in the music business. 
we like to focus on people that have had a long career and you know, they wouldn't fall into the normal growing up rock type episodes that we do. So that's what the Thinking the Great series is about. And it's our way of kind of focusing on a certain group of music and just paying tribute, right? I mean, that's kind of what the Thinking the Great series is all about, right, Sonny? Yeah. And these are, you know, if you're nerds like us, you were most likely reading all of the liner notes and blah, blah, blah. And, and these are the guys who are in the liner notes. That's right. So... Before we get too far into that, you know we got to do this. It's time for the Crank It Up New Music Spotlight. All right, so tonight's Crank It Up New Music Spotlight, we're going to focus on part of the Thanking the Greats with Holly Knight and talk about the band, The Donnas. The Donnas are a band that have been around for a while. I kind of like a lot of their music, but I don't love everything by them. They're sort of hit or miss for me on some of the stuff. They've had a couple of mild hits along the way. I don't think they're even together anymore. I think they're broken up. But in 2007, Holly Knight wrote with them and wrote a song called Here's for the Party off their album, Bitchin'. Check it out. I don't want to talk, I'm already gone And I can't even listen Called all my friends, yeah they're on their way And I don't need permission Okay, so it's okay. I've never really connected with all the stuff the Donnas do. It's like female power punk and always kind of lands a little flat with me. There's not a lot of power punk that I like, and I think that's probably why. I really liked the stuff like Take It Off, where it was very riff-oriented and more rock than it was punk. I think I like some of the raw punk aggression. I get some of that stuff, but I liked the straight ahead, more rock stuff. Now, Holly Knight on her website, 
she has a lot of information around songs and bands she's worked with and things like this. And this is what she had to say about this Donna's tune. She said, I met Allison. Allison is the guitarist for the Donna's at the Key Club one night when we were both judges for a battle of the bands. I was already a Donna's fan and liked her instantly. I found over the years that women who are rockers gravitate towards one another. We're like foreign diplomats in a male-dominated country. We ended up writing seven songs, and two of them made it onto the record Bitchin'. I was impressed with Allison as a guitarist and found all of the girls to be very down-to-earth and sweet. So you'll find, as we talk about Holly, Holly is definitely... She's very girl power, right? She's And there's nothing wrong with that. I'm just stating that up front. She's a very strong female influence. And she's had to put up probably with a lot of shit over the years. And she strikes me as a person that really doesn't put up with a whole bunch of shit. Yeah. And, you know, it's a tough business to be in. I mean, we talked to Brit Lightning and some of these guys that are gals, I should say, that, uh, you know, us guys weren't the nicest to and didn't think they could do it. And I'll tell you, honestly, I've told you this before, you know, after kind of Lita, I kind of punted on all female singers. Like I was like done with females and rock I, after Ann Wilson and Lita and some of those guys, I'm like, I just can't really listen to it anymore. And I would say probably from almost like the early nineties, all the way through the two thousands, I was like pretty much done with female rock singers. It was Lizzie who brought me back. Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, for me personally, it was always about the music. I mean, I never gravitated towards a band because there were females in it or males in it. It was basically, you know, did I like the song or did I not like the song? So, I can't say that, honestly, uh, that was ever a driving force. But then again, back in the 80s, it was definitely male-dominated. All the bands that I loved were male bands. So... Who knows? Maybe subconsciously. Well, I think part of it is I was looking for music as a getaway, as a way to deal with things. And I connected with singers that were either doing things I wanted to do or saying things I couldn't quite say or putting stuff into words that I didn't know how to put into words. There just wasn't females that were doing that for me. And I, you know, I'm you know in my teens and in my early 20s. And I, I, I've told you this before. Somehow I'm listening to Lizzie's music going, how, how is she pulling shit right out of my diary? Yeah. Right? So then all of a sudden, now I'm older by the time that I get connected to Lizzie. My ears opened a little bit. And man, there are so many great female singers the last 10, 15 years that it's hard to turn away because a lot of the music I like now is female fronted. So it's, it's just different for me. Yeah. It's all about timing, right? That's exactly what it is. Yeah. Everyone's got a rock and roll story to tell, and we want to hear yours. So go to our website at growinguprock.com. That's one word, G-R-O-W-I-N-U-P-R-O-C-K.com. Or visit us on our Facebook page at Growing Up Rock and tell us all about it. Before I became a songwriter, I was in a rock band, and my only dream was to be a rock star. You know, not because I wanted to be so much uh, rich and famous, but because I just wanted to play the music that I wanted to play, and I wanted to have some sort of platform for that. And as I was in this band, everybody was writing, and I thought I would just try writing. I'd never sort of done it before, so I kind of stumbled into it and sort of realized that I was actually pretty good at it. 
Okay, so a little bit of uh, just Holly's story. We're going to talk a lot about Holly's specific story on specific songs when we kind of get to our picks. But just as an overall, Holly Knight, born September 21st, 56. Um, Obviously, she's a songwriter. She was a musician, still is. She's a singer, still is. She was a member of uh, pop rock groups in the 80s. One was named Spider. We'll talk about Spider a little bit later. One was called Device. She's written and co-written tons of hit singles. If you go to her website, click on discography, you're going to get the phone book, and you're going to be surprised because there's some songs in there like Love is a Battlefield, Simply the Best by Tina Turner, Better Be Good to Me by Tina Turner. Like we're talking about there are songs that won Grammys and were number one hits and probably made her a ton of money. So we're going to talk about some of those songs also. In 2013, she was inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame, absolutely deserved it. She's won 13 ASCAP awards, has uh, co-written for tons of musicians like we talked about, and won Grammy awards for recordings of her songs, right? So, you know, and no co-writer, writer of songs, and then handing it off to others ever goes without some sort of controversy between songwriter and the singer and the person who's performing it and how much of it did Holly do and how much did they do? And, you know, who knows if everybody's sober while all that stuff's happening, like who knows, like everybody's kind of got their whole story spun. Holly didn't get involved in a lot of that kind of drama because a lot of the pieces she brought to these folks was fully done anyway, but that has happened a little bit. When you go look at her discography about all the songs that she's helped write and co-write, you will be absolutely amazed of how many of the songs you know and how many genres that she has written in. So absolutely, if you're a liner note nerd, you have seen the name Holly Knight. For sure. And uh, even if you don't recognize the song title, listen to it because there's been a couple of song titles that I didn't recognize that I listened to and I was like, oh yeah, that's that song. (laughs) (laughs) Well, because like simply the best, I keep calling it simply the best. The song is called the best, right? But the line goes simply the best, better than all the rest. Like if you don't know that, then you're like, what song is that? (laughs) Right. That's right. Uh, So yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely, uh, she's had a, an amazing career and has written just so many songs. So we're going to get into five for myself, and then I'm going to turn it over to Sonny, and he's going to give you five as well. And with each one of these songs, like I said, Holly has some really, really good information on her website. And if you ever want to go check it, check it out, hollyknight.com. There's all kinds of great information, but I'm going to share the information she has on her website about each one of these songs that I'm going to talk about, and then we'll go through it. So the first song for me that I absolutely loved and really have loved it even at a time where I wasn't really into this type music was The Warrior by Patti Smythe and Scandal, which at the time it was just Scandal. Uh, At some point, they kind of changed the narrative and it became Patti Smythe and Scandal, but uh, The Warrior was a huge MTV hit. That's what I remember it for most. Uh, And this is what Holly had to say about The Warrior. She said, Mike Chapman had produced the number one hit, Hot Child in the City, for a Canadian male singer with a voice that sounded like a woman's. His name was Nick Gilder. I remember Nick Gilder. And I loved his voice. Mike introduced us and suggested we try to write something for Patti Smythe, a singer he was about to produce. 
Nick is a great singer himself, and he hated the thought of giving The Warrior to another artist because he thought he could have a much-needed follow-up hit with it. But we reasoned with him because we had intended from the beginning to give it to Patty. In the end, I think he was thrilled that it became a hit for her. So she said the name of Patty's band was Scandal, and the label changed the name to Scandal featuring Patty Smythe, just like I was telling you. Then she went solo and became known as just Patty Smythe. The video for The Warrior was silly. This is coming from Holly Knight. And I couldn't understand what happened because Patty was much cooler than that. I think it was a case of the label having their head up their asses, a reoccurring theme, and not letting her be herself. It should have been a live video and her without the war paint as a result. I don't think that helped her career, even though the song was massive. I thought Hands Tied was a hit as well. And I could never understand why her label didn't give the proper push it deserved. In my opinion, they screwed up. Patty Smythe should have been a huge star. She's an awesome singer. And then she shared an interesting bit of trivia, a case of Kevin Bacon's Six Degrees of Separation. I found out years later that in a previous year, Patty had sung the backing vocals on Change, another tune that Holly had wrote for her band Spider, which later was covered by vocalist John Waite. It was produced by Neil Giraldo, Pat Benatar's guitarist and husband. So there you go, Six Degrees of Separation for that. Okay, so Bang Bang, right? Patty Smythe, yep. great singer. I wish she would have done more rock. I think Patty would have continued to do well, especially in the mid to late 80s. She kind of, you know, this is one of the greatest songs of the 80s. I mean, what a great chorus. The song's super written well. Yeah. Patty kind of just disappeared into the ether. She showed up that Don Hanley song she did a little bit later, but she didn't exactly have like a Madonna type career, right? I mean, people know who she is, but she wasn't one of the big ones. Now, this song, 
Holly is dead right. This goes to somebody that can't do it right. Dude, like if Debbie Gibson did this song, we wouldn't give two shits about this song. Like it needed to be in the right person's hands. Yeah. And I, I really love the other, uh, she, Patty Smythe had what a couple of songs, right? She had the warrior and she had another one, um, that was really good. What was the, uh, other hit song that she had? Well, scandal had goodbye to you. Goodbye to you. That's the other one that I liked quite a bit as well, but that's, that's still Patty Smythe, right? Uh, it's scandal. Yeah. Yeah. Well, like I said, scandal featuring Patty Smythe. It's <laughs> they changed the narrative on the whole thing when they decided to take her and try to sell just her, but whatever. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So moving on to my next song. Uh my next song comes off of Bon Jovi's New Jersey. Yes, she wrote with Bon Jovi, but there were a lot of people that wrote with Bon Jovi and by far I think Desmond Child probably had the most success because the song that Holly wrote with Bon Jovi, it was a a second attempt I think to recapture Wanted Dead or Alive more or less, but I liked the song Stick to Your Guns, but it wasn't a huge hit on uh, New Jersey. So this is what Patty had to say about Stick to Your Guns from Bon Jovi. One night, my friend Phil Susan, who was bass player in Ozzy's band, he's now bass player in Last in Line, took me to the Rainbow on the Sunset Strip for a drink. As we walked in, he noticed his friend John Bon Jovi sitting in one of the red booths with a few girls. Go figure. <laughs> he, he bought me over to say hi and introduce me. Surprisingly, John knew who I was and didn't waste any time. He said, why haven't we written together? The next day, he came over to my studio, which was in a high-rise apartment building near Westwood. An over-enthusiastic fan had been stalking him for days and had followed him to my building. Hours later, the doorman confirmed that she was still parked on the street. By the end of the afternoon, we'd written most of Stick to Your Guns, and we called it a day, promising to finish up the lyrics soon. We devised this ridiculous plan to get rid of his stalker, something so cliché that I've seen more than once in some movies, but in the dumbest way, it actually worked. John put on a dark wig I had that was left over from Halloween, and I stuffed my hair into his baseball cap. I left my building in his car. He left in mine in the opposite direction. The girl followed me. When she caught up with me, John was long gone, and she just stared at me, no doubt feeling a little stupid. I sort of felt sorry for her. I drove off to meet John and swap our cars when he went to the airport the next day. She was there waiting on him. <laughs> I went to New York a few weeks later, and John sent a limo to bring me to the house in Jersey. Richie was there, and the three of us finished up the tune. They had written a lot more tunes than they had planned to keep, so I was happy Stick to Your Guns made it on the record.
So the craziest part of this song for me is this could be the song I listen to the least on that album. That's how great New Jersey is. It's not one of my fave songs on that, but I listened to it the other day because I knew you were going to pick it. And I'm like, why don't I listen to this song more? Like, I like the ballad, a bombastic type song, and it's really good and it's catchy. I just don't ever think about it because it wasn't one of the singles. You know, it I guess lands in the filler category, but it deserves better than that. Yeah. Do you agree that it's basically trying to capture Wanted Dead or Alive again, right? Well, yeah, but I mean, you could say that about any ballad and bombastic, bombastic type song from Bon Jovi after Wanted Dead or Alive. Like, you ain't going to catch that again. The stick to your guns, you know, he was kind of going for this, I don't know, like a uh, rocker cowboy thing going on with Wanted Dead or Alive, right? That both albums have a hint of that. He kept, you know, all the way through his blaze of glory and all that shit. He kind of kept this rocker cowboy thing going for a while. So it works. They even kept it going all the way to Nashville when they put out Lost Highway. <laughs> yeah, that's true, I guess. Uh, I mean, there's always been a little bit of country in them, but I think that that's the neighborhood kid. I mean, it's the same, it's that same sort of thing that Bruce Springsteen has, right? It's the, the real story kind of kid thing. You know what I mean? It just, uh, it connects with people, uh, working class, blue collar, that whole thing. Uh, and that is a lot of, a lot of country is based on that as well. So I kind of see it. Uh, I don't think it's that big of a stretch, but I like the tune. I like the melody. I like the course. It's just, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't skip it. It's one that I like off that record. All right. So now we are moving on to a song that was originally written with Mike Chapman for Cheap Trick, but it was also recorded by an artist named Charlie Sexton. Now, I like Charlie Sexton because he was part of this band called the Archangels, which I like uh, quite a bit. They put out a record I was uh, really enthused about a long time ago. I don't even know. Uh, how long that was, but uh, that record was, uh, I still listen to that record today. Archangel's record's really good. Anyway, the name of the song is called Space. And here's what she had to say about that. She said, I've always been a fan of Cheap Trick since, uh, since I can remember. So when I got together with them to write, I was pinching myself. We wrote one song, but in the end, I played them something new that I had written with Mike Chapman called Space. Although it was never released as a single, it's one of my favorite songs that I wrote. I also wrote many tunes with Robin for his solo record that I have stashed away. Maybe one day people will get to hear them. They're really pretty good. Space was also recorded by a young Texan singer named Charlie Sexton. That's the version I'm going to play you right now. Check it out.
Okay, so I went and listened to both versions because I had never heard this song. Don't know this song ever. So the Cheap Trick song, it's rock. Robin sounds great. The chorus, that oh, 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 oh. Sounds a little cheesy with Robin doing it, and I don't know why. Mm-hmm. And they try to kind of rock it up at the end with a guitar noodling, but it was a little too late. Charlie's version felt a little more pop right out of the gate, mm-hmm. and Charlie kind of feels like a like a poor man's Billy Idol type of thing. Uh, his voice was okay, but the song seems to fit Charlie better, although to me, Robin's the better singer, if that makes sense. Uh, it does make sense. I like the Charlie Sexton version better than the Cheap Chick version, and that's nothing against Cheap Chick. I just feel like basically like what you just said, which is I felt like this was song, like this song was more suited for him and his style. That's my feelings on uh, space. Yeah. All right. So moving on to my next song, I'm going to share the song Never From Heart. So here's what Holly had to say about this song. The management for Heart called me up and asked me if I could meet with the band at SIR Studios in Hollywood. From the moment I met the Wilson sisters, we were a sisterhood. Girls who play rock music always gravitate towards one another because there just aren't a lot of us. I think there's a lot of you nowadays. They recorded their record at the record plant both in Hollywood and up in Northern California, and I would fly up on weekends to visit and work with them. I played the keyboards on Never, which I really loved because I missed playing in a band. The mysterious writer in the credits, Connie, is actually Anne and Nancy Wilson. Gene was the guitarist in my band, Device. We all came together and wrote Never, and I absolutely love Never off Hart's album. Self-titled. Check it out.
So we've talked about this song before. I have always loved this song. And uh, all right, here comes the hate mail. So you can send that to growinguprock <laughs> at gmail.com. We always say it about Alice. I'm going to say it about heart too, because to me it applies. 80s heart is the best heart to me. <laughs> it's not even the best heart to the Wilson sisters, but it's still the best heart to me. Well, because they, they bought on a whole new demographic of, of fans at that point. So it was a very necessary period in their career. Right. Uh, so that's, it's, I don't think you're alone and I don't think it's a surprise. I'm just one of those individuals that likes pretty much all errors of heart. I mean, with all errors of heart, I find music that I like. So it's, it's not an either or for me personally, do I prefer one over the other, man, it's really hard for me to, um, it's really hard for me to like the eighties heart over some of the classics that were, you know, classic, they're still classic rock staples, uh, for today, but, uh, I get it. It's like I said, not that big of a stretch. All right. So I'm going to move on to my fifth and final song. And we are talking about Aerosmith's Ragdoll. This is what Holly's had to say about Ragdoll. This is the one time in my career where I agreed to be bought in to tighten a screw on an already existing tune. Not something I particularly enjoy doing. John Claudner, Aerosmith's A&R man, was overseeing their new record, and they had a tune that he thought had potential as a single, 
but in its present state was missing something. After weeks of listening to the track and talking to Stephen, the band flew me up to Vancouver where they were finishing up permanent vacation. I felt that the song didn't need a rewrite because it was already pretty good, but I didn't like the title and hence what the song was about. It was called Ragtime, not very edgy or sexy or anything really. I suggested to Steven that it could be more about him and he should change it to Ragdoll. He loved the idea. We tweaked one line in the course and at the end of the song, he went in the vocal booth and resung all the courses. Ragdoll was released as a single and became a big hit for Aerosmith. As far as what it was like to work with the Mad Hatter, what I can tell you that you don't already know he was mischievous charming rock star and amazing singer you think she's holding anything back from that conversation yeah, there you go yeah <laughs> i'll just tell you what you already know i won't tell you that he was doing lines of cocaine in between each song well i don't believe that's the case right because permanent vacation they were definitely sober uh, because this was this was a big push for the sober, sobriety of the band, and that's the only reason why the manager at the time he he was dead set on them being sober. So I don't think there was any of that going on, but I think there was Stephen being Stephen, and you know Stephen's a man whore. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so so that that I think was going on, but I I don't necessarily think that drugs were involved on that uh, at all but you know i like ragdoll it's definitely not my favorite off of that uh permanent vacation record and as you you hear from her really she i'm surprised she even got a writing credit on that you know because it doesn't sound like she did much at all changed the title and tweaked a couple things maybe but that was about it right yeah but you know that could be the difference between it being a single and it being a song you never hear that's true. Yeah, absolutely. That's a, a great point. That's my five from Holly Knight. You know, just she's done a lot of stuff and, and uh, uh, you still have all yours to share. So I'm looking forward to what you're going to share. Yeah. Talk about Ragdoll a second. I'm not a huge Aerosmith fan. 80s Aerosmith and people send your hate mail is really the only Aerosmith I can tolerate. And Aerosmith fans hate 80s Aerosmith, but it's catchy and I can kind of handle his voice. But when it kind of comes to the end, his voice kind of gnaws at me at times. I can maybe come up with 10 songs that I really like from Aerosmith. Maybe. Listen, Aerosmith fans don't hate 80s Aerosmith. 80s Aerosmith is what got me into Aerosmith and had me go backwards. So that's not the case. Oh, okay. Because I, I always hear like hardcore Aerosmith. Ah, no, no, no. You need to listen to the 70s. That shit after permanent vacations, all crap. I'm like, you mean all the hits? <laughs> well, there's definitely those people out there. And I think overall, I prefer the uh, 70s Aerosmith to the 80s Aerosmith, but again, sort of in the same vein as, as Hart, there's a lot of 80s Aerosmith that I love. Yeah. All right, so getting to my five songs, <laughs> I took kind of a, a different uh, way. Uh, you'll get that in a second here. <laughs> so the first song I want to talk about is Holly's favorite song. She said it, uh, that she's written, Invincible by Pat Benatar. Um, we're going to talk about the version I want to play here in a second, but here's what Holly had to say about Invincible. Invincible is a tune I wrote in London with Simon, and I'm going to say his last name is Climey. I'm guessing on that. 
one half of the band Climbing Fisher. I was there looking for a lead singer for my new band device, and Chapman suggested I check out Simon for the band. Went to his place to do some writing. He had a teeny apartment in London with two keyboards in it, total of which was probably about a year's worth of his rent. I mentioned to him that I had a script for the new movie called The Legend of Billy Jean, which was like a Joan of Arc movie, G-rated version of Natural Born Killers type of movie. The film producers wanted something empowering and anthemic for a woman. I also knew that Pat Benatar was getting ready to do a new album, and I suggested we try to write a song for the movie and get to Pat to sing it. Pat loved the tune and recorded it. Mike Chapman produced it. It was a single on her record, Seven the Hard Way, and became a huge hit. Her band shot a video for it while Pat was four months pregnant, by the way. So if you see that movie or that video, she's four months pregnant, and uh, she looks hot in that video. I saw it the other day. <laughs> After 9-11, the tune enjoyed a resurgence just because of the lyr- lyrical content, which makes sense. And then Holly says, what can I say about Pat? She's truly an iconic and talented singer with an unbelievable range and fire that no one has been able to duplicate or replicate since. And I would absolutely agree with that. I love, love, love writing for her because I can really be creative with the melodies. I know she can sing anything that I give her as long as she likes it. That's a luxury I'm not often afforded. Everyone is always looking for the next Benatar, but there's only one. And it might be one of my favorite tunes that I've written in. We already talked about that. Now, for the version that I want to play, (laughs) you are going to hear a version by a band called Fireland. I will tell you that the riff is a little more power metal. And you know what? We'll talk about the rest when we come back. So here is Fireland with their version of Invincible.
Yep. There's no getting those two mixed up. <laughs> <laughs> so before I get your thoughts on this, here's, here's what I think. The power metal riff thing works. The singer's a little extra. I got it. It's probably like, a, like almost a TSO type version, but you know, that guitar solo, like at two minutes in, dude, I love Neil, but come on, dude, that is pretty awesome. 35 seconds right there. And I love that the singer didn't try to hit Pat's notes instead of just kind of did what he did. You know what? I, I actually like the version. It's hard with iconic songs. And I mean, Invincible's kind of an iconic song, right? I like it. I like the break before the solo. I like that the change up before the solo. I, I really enjoyed that. That got my attention. I wish I had just heard the song and not seen the video. The singer kind of drives me nuts. I'm like, is that Gandalf singing? I don't know what's going on there. Where's his staff of light? But anyway, uh, yeah, you know, it's okay. It's not bad. It wasn't offensive in any way, shape, or form. I mean, I'm not going to go, hey, I'd rather hear this than the original, but the original at this point, I mean, it's a little fatigued, right? But yeah, it's definitely an interesting version, and I compliment you on the fact that you're sharing it uh, as kind of a change of pace, uh, because certainly we everybody knows the original. And I've told him personally, and I am going to make it more public now, Restrain needs to do this song. Dude, I think they would absolutely rock it up and kill the vocal. There's just something about this song that I think they would just knock it out of the park, but I think Tony's... You know, he's looking at it like, that's a classic song. I'm not messing with that. But Do, do those guys do any covers? They do some. They've done, uh, God, who was that? Uh, Slash's band. Well, I can't, a Velvet Revolver cover. They've done a Night Ranger cover. Uh, so they've done a few. Uh, yeah, I mean, they need to do something more old and make it their own, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, the next song that I want to share is a song called Between Two Fires by Jimmy Barnes. You have no idea who the hell Jimmy Barnes is, so let me start with what Holly Knight says. Jimmy Barnes is a successful Scottish-born Australian singer. Working with him was pretty easy and quick. Between Two Fires, which is a song I'm going to play for you, was his title track and the first single to an album called Two Fires and became his first solo album to go number one in Australia. In addition, he did a stellar duet with Tina Turner of Simply the Best, which was used as the Australian rugby theme, as well as uh, covering the song himself on his Greatest Hits album. Now, if you don't know who the hell Jimmy Barnes is, of course, he's from Australia, been in music since 1973, has 15 number one albums as a solo artist in Australia, five additional number one albums as the member of a band called Cold Chisel, in Australia. So that's 20. That's more than the Beatles in Australia. Mm -hmm. So this guy is the man. Mm -hmm. Okay. He has like 30 albums out there total for this song. I really like the vocal. The synth is a little loud. I wish the guitar was a little bit better in the mix. Jimmy's got a little bit of Glenn Hughes in his voice. You're going to hear that a little bit. I'm not the biggest Glenn Hughes fan, but the song is catchy and Jimmy has just the right amount of rasp. So it works for me. And the guitar solo is great. So check this out. If you never heard it between two fires by Jimmy Barnes, this is from 1990.
All right, so let me start by saying I know who Jimmy Barnes is. Jimmy Barnes came onto my radar because I'm relatively sure he does a duet with Michael Hutchins from In Excess on a song that was pretty popular at one point in time. It may have even been part of the Lost Boys soundtrack. I'm not 100% sure about that last fact. But here's a little known fact that a lot of people might not know about Jimmy Barnes is that I think at one point in time, he was actually on the list being considered to replace Bon Scott when Bon Scott died in ACDC because Jimmy Barnes, he's there in Australia. He's very famous at this point. They already know him. I'm sure he's friends with the, uh, the young brothers at this point. And I don't know how far that went but that was uh, uh, something that I had read one point in time at Jimmy Barnes. Now, this song, Between Two Fires, I like it. I like a lot of Jimmy Barnes stuff. Uh, you know, he's just kind of a straight-up rock artist that maybe sort of, you know, uh, toes that line between pop and rock. And, uh, yeah, it's good. Okay, for my third pick, I'm going to go with more of a pop song. It's a song called Love Touch by Rod Stewart. And here is what... Holly had to say about it. I received a phone call one day from Rod's management inviting me to their office to meet Rod. I remember walking into the room and Rod was sitting at a long table in the conference room waiting for me. That was a little nerve wracking, but I came prepared because I knew I'd only get one shot with him. I put a cassette on, which was basically all the parts to love touch, except for the verse lyrics and a bridge enough for Rod to say he loved it and wanted to work with me. Although we did get together a few times to write, we just ended up hanging out and having too much fun. I can imagine that with Rod. And I started getting frustrated. I ended up finishing the song with Mike Chapman, Gene Black, who was my guitarist and device, who came up with the guitar riff that really made the song hooky. Mike produced a track. I played keyboards. Mike Bacoro from Toto played bass. Gene played the guitars, and I sang the backing vocals. Oddly enough, Rod asked me to sing the backups before he put down his vocal. He made a bit of a cheesy video for it because it was a... It was the theme song for the movie Legal Eagles with Robert Redford, Deborah Winger, and Daryl Hannah. So if you haven't heard Love Touch, this is the first single off of Rod's 16th studio album in 86 called Every Beat of My Heart. Now, that synth, instantly recognizable if you grew up in the 80s because it felt like it was everywhere. This song topped out number five in the Billboard 100. That's probably why it was everywhere. And I'll just tell you, the song is just absolute magic. It's got a great chorus, so check out, if you haven't heard it, Love Touch by Rod Stewart. Somewhere to hide Can I not 
Yeah, I'm not sure I could have picked this song out of a lineup. You've never heard that. I did recognize it when I put it on. I didn't necessarily recognize the title. I'm sure I've heard it. I don't know. But yeah, the keyboard is very familiar for sure. And uh, I, did you like Legal Eagles? I don't even remember oh, that movie. That movie wasn't that great. Yeah, I don't remember that movie too much either. I remember I've heard of it before. I just don't remember if I ever saw it. But. Yeah, you know, it's very much an 80s tune, right? Very much identifiable with that period of time, for sure. Yeah. Okay, so we are going to go next with a song called Change. And most people know it as a John Waite song, but uh, I'm going to play the Spider version for you. So here's kind of what Holly had to say about Spider and then about John Waite. So about Spider, because this was on the second album, she said, this was the second record I recorded with my band Spider. On it, you can hear the original version of Better Be Good to Me and Change. Spider had five members, myself, Anton Fig, who was the drummer, Keith Lenton, who was on guitars, Amanda Blue, who was the lead vocalist, and Jimmy Lowell, who was the bass player. I was with Spider for four years. We released two records on the ill-fated Dreamland Records, but out of it came my writing relationship with Mike Chapman and a career in songwriting. I'm still good friends with the band. Then she says about John Waite. Originally, I wrote the song Change for my band Spider's second record. Soon after we recorded it, John Waite recorded it for his solo album, by the way, his first, called Ignition. Obviously, Neil Gerardo was part of the whole deal. Pat was involved too. Well, Neil's Pat's guitarist and husband. That's, I guess, six degrees of separation thingy again. Holly loves John's version better than Spider because it has more edgier rock track to it. And it's one of her favorite top 10 songs that she's ever written. Now, I will tell you that it was the first sec single off his debut album, Ignition. And then if you remember in 85, the John Waite version also hit the Vision Quest soundtrack, and then it hit the Billboard 100 again. John's version is a little rockier, and his rasp gives the song a completely different punch than what Spider had done with it. As the years have went on, I've seen John Waite live a couple of times. He continues to make the song like more and more rock every time you see him. The original version has nice guitar solo, John's does, but the Spider version is a little more synth versus the piano that John used. So... The Spider version is a little more dated, almost a little more disco. So here's what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to play 
changed by spider and about halfway through it, I'm going to switch to the John Waite version so you can hear both. So here is change. the first song that I ever got cut was by uh, an artist named John Waite and it was a song called Change and then Tina heard Better Be Good To Me and that became the second single on her Private Dancer record she heard it because it had been cut by my band Mm. so that was kind of how it started and then I started writing for people because I happened to be in the right place at the right time yeah so I've never heard this spider version before today Uh, I checked it out yeah I mean this is the perfect example of a songwriter writing a song. And maybe this is the difference in why some songwriters as artists 
aren't successful because I mean, the, the John Waite version is just so much better. And I mean, she acknowledges that as well. It's just, you know, sometimes it takes two ingredients to make a cake, not just one ingredient. And, uh, there's a lot to be said about that. I just, I like the John Waite version so much more of the, of this song. It's his voice. Like his voice has, an edge to it that could almost be punk, but it's got some soul in it. And man, it sells it. It does. But you know, I like the music better. I like the, the arrangement better. So, you know, and it's, and it was a, it's a better produced song sonically than the spider version. You know, you can really hear the, you know, the chain change, you know, you can hear all those backgrounds and things like that much clearer, much better. And, and those are, I mean, those are part of the hook to me. Yeah. And I think the difference there is spiders is still a spider is still trying to make its bones. Right. Sure. And this is John Waite's first solo album. He's coming out of the babies. The record company knows they got a gold mine. Get him a song and then give him anything he needs to make that thing sound great. Yeah, agreed. So, okay, my last song that I'm going to pick is going to be Just Between You and Me by Lou Graham. So this is what Holly had to say about the song. It was a wonderful experience to write with Lou, one of my favorite male rock singers from one of the best commercial rock bands of the 80s, Foreigner. A total pro, we wrote Just Between You and Me in one afternoon and it went top five on Billboard. So obviously everybody knows Lou Graham for Foreigner. This was from his second solo album released in 1989 called Long Hard Look. Song topped out at number six on the Billboard 100. Lou sounds amazing. We're talking about he is in the bang zone of his voice because it's late 80s. They've had a ton of hits with Foreigner. You know, it's that just that age we always talk about with Paul Stanley, that, that age between like 25 and 40 where they just got it going on. Awesome chorus. I'm surprised the song didn't go number one. I think if it has the foreigner moniker, it does go number one, but here's what stopped it from going number one. So the top five, the day this thing topped out at six was two to make it right by seduction was at number five. I don't even know that song. Everything by Jody Watley at four. I know that song, but it's not that great. Downtown train by Rod Stewart was number three. Okay. That one's a hard one. Pump up the jam by Technotronic (laughs) was number two. Okay. I get it. It's 1989. And then at number one was How Am I Supposed to Live Without You by Michael Bolton. The only way they got a shot at number one, just between you and me, is they had to say Foreigner at the end of it. So here's the song. Check it out.
Yeah, so this was the one I didn't recognize the title, obviously. Are you kidding me? Yeah, I, I didn't recognize the title. I recognized the song. When I listened to the song, I was like, oh, yeah, this, that's this one. Uh, I just didn't, you know, if you told me to name some Lou Graham songs, not Foreigner, I, I, my mind instantly goes to uh, Midnight Blue. Yeah. Uh, and then um, Here I Come, Ready or Not. I think it's just Ready or Not is the other tune uh, that I like a lot by him. Um, but this one, this one didn't register uh, until I heard it. When I heard it, I was like, oh, yeah, that's this tune. So, yeah. Yeah, cool. it's a good song, though. Good song. Yeah, yeah, not bad. All right. So from Holly, I wanted to share one more thing. Uh, she put on her website, she often gets asked which tunes were her personal favorite. So here's the top 10 she gave. So 10, Love Touch. Nine, One for the One of the Living. I don't, who's, who is that? Oh, that's a Tina Turner song. I forgot. That's a Tina Turner song. Is it? I don't know that yeah. one. Obsession by Anna Motion, yep. if you remember that one. Uh, Pleasure and Pain. I don't remember who Pleasure and Pain that, is by. That's the Divinals. Oh, okay. That Wait, that was I touch, after I touched myself? It was, yeah, it had to be after I touched myself because I touched myself really is the only hit they had. I don't think they had a hit with Pleasure and Pain. Yeah, I don't think so. The Warrior was number six. We talked about that. Space was number five. We talked about that. Better Be Good to Me by Tina Turner was number four. Love is a Battlefield three, Change to an Invincible one. So probably not surprising. Some of her most famous songs, probably the ones that made her a lot, a lot of money, except for the best isn't on here, which I'm surprised about that. Uh, Cause I think that's made her the most amount of money. It so, has. Yeah. So maybe she just left that off there. Cause it's like, you know, uh, 0.5 or one a or whatever. All right, so, well, Holly has some history with Kiss, so let's connect it to Kiss. You wanted the best, but you got the best! The hottest band in the world, Kiss! It's time for your historic moment on Growing Up Rock. So for the historic moment, Kiss and Holly Knight have some history. On the record record and credited, Holly has co-written Hide Your Heart, which was on Hot in the Shade. And if you remember that song, Robin Beck did a version, Ace Fraley did a version, Bonnie Tyler did a version. She co-wrote I Pledge Allegiance to the State of Rock and Roll from Cycle Circus. She co-wrote Raise Your Glasses from Cycle Circus. And she co-wrote It's Not Me on Paul's solo album Live to Win. Off the record, Holly encountered Kiss to begin with because she was in Spider, who had Anton Fig. Kiss already knew Anton because they had already worked with Anton on Dynasty. Also, Spider was managed by Bill O'Coin, who obviously managed Kiss. So Gene kind of runs into Holly. Holly was doing some light keyboards while they were recording Unmasked. Gene goes, well, Holly, why don't you just play keyboards on Unmasked? But tells her, you'll get paid, but you ain't getting no credit for the recording. So we want you to be on the recording, but we ain't giving you credit and nobody's going to believe you if you tell anybody you played. So, but we'll pay you. So I figured I'll play the probably one of the more keyboard heavy tunes on Unmasked. So here is Easy As It Seems.
<laughs> yeah. And she also dated Paul Stanley. Did you know this? Oh, I didn't know that. I, I didn't know it either till she mentioned it on uh, Eddie Trunk's show. Uh, so, yeah, she tells this whole story on Eddie Trunk's show. She did an interview with him not too long ago. She just put out a book not that long ago. So I, I'd be interested in reading the book. It sounds like a good read. But, yeah, th- as far as easy as it seems, uh, it's not one of my more favorite songs off of Unmasked. And Unmasked is definitely a record that I've come a long way with, really, since the podcast. You're credited as getting me back into this record and recognizing it for what it is. Uh, and I now like Unmasked as a pop record. It's just a little bit different Kiss record. But Easy As It Seems isn't one of my more favorite songs off that record. It's all right. It's not bad. So what happens with me with some of these, well, I'm going to just call her a legendary songwriter because she's written some legendary songs. That's just all there is to it, right? And it happened a little bit with Desmond Child too. When you find out that they have their own studio albums or they were in bands, then you want to go kind of check out what they were doing because it's like, well, if I liked some of the stuff that they wrote for these people, they must have amazing albums, right? So the spider two the two spider albums, they're dated. They're early eighties. There's hints of the type of songwriter she would become in there for sure. She didn't have a hand in writing every single song for spider, but you can kind of tell where she was involved and uh, there's there's inklings there. Device released an album called 22B3, or whether that's 22B3, I'm not exactly sure, but it was released in 86. I went and listened to it. It's super techno pop. I, I really couldn't get into it. It it almost was like uh, that Harold Faltemeyer dude. Remember that dude? <laughs> yeah, Beverly Hills Cop. Yeah, it was that kind of stuff, like almost a little more techno than that. Somewhere between that and like Flock of Seagulls kind of techno uh, with vocals on top. I couldn't get into it. Then she released a solo album uh-huh. called Holly Knight in 1989. Super pop. It was like between like a Tiffany and Debbie Gibson. I wish it was more rock. It was ultra pop. And yeah. I couldn't get into that either. But that was like when Desmond Child released Discipline 91. I could run to that album thinking I'm going to love everything I hear going, God, I really like it that you write for other people because I just can't get into what you're doing. You know what I mean? She's written some huge hits. I'm sure she doesn't have to work another day in her life. I'm pretty sure that two or three of these songs more than pay for her rent and anything else that she wants to buy because it's just songs like Invincible and Love is a Battlefield and Better Be Good to Me and The Best. Those songs alone probably bring her they should probably print money off of them not to mention songs like obsession which is just about everywhere these days too oh yeah absolutely and you know we've told this story before at least i have where i'd be reading liner notes and it's like how come diane warren desmond child holly knight why do they keep coming up like who are these people and how do they write songs for like everybody it's a part of my history there's no doubt and a lot of the music that i love and some of the songs that I love in this world, Holly Knight had a hand in. So I don't know if I'll ever get to talk to Holly Knight, but if I don't, I just want to thank her for all the stuff that she put out there in the atmosphere, because a lot of it connected to me and a lot of it has been kind of a soundtrack to my life. 
Yeah, Holly seems like a no take no shit type woman, and uh, that's awesome. And she's done some amazing music, and that's what these Thanking the Great series is all about. We appreciate all the music that she's done because it's been a part of each one of our lives growing up in rock and roll. And uh, yeah, that's what these episodes are about, focusing on people that would not normally fit into the normal mold of the grown-up rock episodes. For the listeners, thanks for listening, and here's another Thanking the Greats. See ya. Later. Get ready to shuffle, rattle, and roll. Play us out, boys. Please make sure you subscribe to our podcast, Growing Up Rock, and leave us a review on iTunes. Give us a like and leave us a comment on Facebook at Growing Up Rock. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.